You may be seated. Please turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, as we continue to make our way through the life of David in a study of First and Second Samuel, uh, this morning we come to chapter 4. And if you're looking ahead at all, you'll notice that in our next chapter, chapter 5, David will finally be crowned as king over all Israel, uh, not only Judah, but Israel as well. And so chapter 4 records for us really the last uh, great events uh, in this divided kingdom. And uh, we'll find here in this chapter the, uh, the murder and the assassination of the king of Israel, Ishbosheth, uh, Saul's own son. Uh, this paves the way for David to become king over all Israel. So we'll be reading 2 Samuel chapter 4. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we uh, make our way through this passage together this morning. And uh, as we do so, let us be mindful that this is God's own word uh, written for us. Let us give our full attention to it. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So far, the reading of God's 
own word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, our passage last Lord's Day, 2 Samuel chapter 3, ended with a funeral, a funeral and a burial. It was the funeral and burial of Abner. It ended with David weeping and lamenting at the burial of Abner. Joab, David's commander, you recall, had killed Abner in cold blood. And though David called down curses upon Joab and even distanced himself from Joab, he failed to deal with Joab in justice. He let the unrepentant Joab live. He did nothing to avenge the blood of Abner. Here was a king who failed to administer justice to one who had done wrong. At the end of the funeral, all David could say was, These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoers according to their wickedness. Well, in our passage this morning, we're introduced to two more evildoers who commit great wickedness. Two brothers, not unlike Joab and Abishai, two brothers who took justice into their own hands, two brothers who thought they would be rewarded by the king. You see the setting there in verse 1, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Ishbosheth was Saul's only remaining son. He's still reigning at this point as king over Israel in this divided kingdom, but now Ishbosheth has a big problem. Abner, his commander, is dead, and his body lies buried in Hebron. Ishbosheth has now received the report, and no doubt, as part of that report, heard that it was Joab who killed Abner, not David. But his courage failed. And his courage failed because he knew that David had done nothing to stop Joab. David had done nothing to punish Joab. And Ishbosheth must have wondered whether he would be next. He knew his own life was now in danger. He had no defense. The, the commander of his army was dead and buried. His strongman had been murdered. The man who pulled the strings in Israel lay buried in a grave in Hebron. In fact, if we were to read verse 1 literally, it would read in the Hebrew, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his hands dropped. You see, Ishbosheth is now helpless. He was a puppet king. Abner had pulled the strings, and now with Abner dead, Ishbosheth is little more than a puppet lying on the stage with no one to pull the strings anymore. We read furthermore that not only had Ishbosheth's hands dropped, his courage failed, but that all Israel was dismayed. They too felt defenseless. They see that their commander is dead, that their king's courage has failed. They're like sheep without a shepherd. 
There's no one to lead them, no one to fight for them, no one to defend them. And so in the midst of all this chaos and dismay, we find two men who took matters into their own hands, two men who saw a great opportunity to advance themselves and to put themselves in David's good graces. We're introduced to them in verses 2 and 3. These two men were captains in Ishbosheth's raiding bands, perhaps the strongest men left in Israel. Their names were Bana and Rechab. They were brothers. They were the sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. Now, that doesn't mean much to any of us, but we need to know a little bit of the history of Beeroth to understand something of the motivation of these two men. We read at the end of verse 2 that Beeroth is counted part of Benjamin. Why is that stated here? Well, we need to go back quite a while in Israel's history, back all the way to the days of Joshua to get the background of what's going on here. And maybe, boys and girls, you remember this story. It's not one of the more familiar stories in the book of Joshua, but maybe one that you've heard. It's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 9. It was the time where Joshua had led the children of Israel into the promised land but, and were defeating their enemies. But uh, the Gibeonites were very fearful, and so they came to Joshua and they tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them. They deceived him. They came with old sacks, with old wineskins, with old sandals, with old garments, and with moldy bread, and they came to Joshua and said, we've come from a far country. Make a covenant with us. And Joshua did so. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 9, and there in the 15th verse of Joshua chapter 9, we, we read that indeed Joshua fell into this deception. We read there these words, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And then do you remember what happened? At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities, listen to this, their cities were Gibeon, Kapira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. You see, Joshua and the leaders of Israel had not done their homework. They had not vetted these Gibeonites who had come to them, and they fell into this trap of deception. And some of those Gibeonites were men of the town of Beeroth. And so the Beerothites were not technically Israelites. In fact, they were not technically even Benjaminites, even though they were counted among the tribe of Benjamin. They were literally aliens in the land, their lives spared only because of their deception. But we need to know a little bit more about the Beerothites, and we're given another clue there in verse 3 of our text. We read that the Beerothites fled to Gittim, and have been sojourners there to this day. Now we need to ask, what would lead the Beerothites to flee to Gittim? Well, we 
have a clue later on in 2 Samuel in chapter 21. It's a rather cryptic reference, and yet I think it gives us the background we need to understand our text this morning. We read in 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 and 2, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. You see, at some point, Saul had slain many of these Gibeonites who had deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel so long ago. And as that slaying of Saul was being carried out, a number of the Beerothites fled to Gittim and have remained sojourners there to this day, as our text puts it. In other words, Saul had broken covenant with the Beerothites. He had broken the word of Joshua. He had broken the covenant that Joshua had made with them and was putting them to death. And that led many of them to flee to Gittim for their lives. That gives us a little bit of an understanding as to the actions of these two men in our text. They were aliens in the land and now filled with desire for revenge. Filled with desire for revenge against Saul and all his house. Filled with a bitterness, a grudge that they have nursed for very long. Much like Joab against Abner in our previous passage. Saul had killed their family members. Their extended relatives, perhaps their parents, perhaps siblings, perhaps their own children. And so these men were filled with revenge. And when they saw that the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker, they saw an opportunity for revenge. As we'll see in the verses that follow, they set their sights on Ishbosheth, Saul's only remaining son. Eliminate him, and the house of Saul is over. They do, however, overlook one descendant. We learn in verse 4 that Saul had a grandson. Look at the words of verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Well, if Bana and Rechab were aware of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, they certainly saw him as inconsequential. He was only a boy, 12 years old at this time, and a cripple, a young boy who was lame in both feet, and so he would never be able to lead Israel in battle. He was too young, he was too lame, he was not a viable heir to the throne, and so the sons of Rimmon, Bana and Rechab, overlook him. We'll learn in the chapters to come that David did not overlook him. We'll see the grace of King David to Mephibosheth in later chapters. We'll see King David keeping his covenant with Jonathan. Remember that covenant he had made with Jonathan to spare his sons. Even as Saul broke a covenant with the Gibeonites, David is one who keeps covenant even with Jonathan in his household. But that's 
for a later sermon. We need to get back to our text now. All we need to realize here in verse 4 is that these two sons of Rimmon have overlooked Mephibosheth and have set their sights on Ishbosheth, Saul's remaining son. Son, Look at verses 5 and 6. The sons of Rimmon, the Beorothite, Rechab and Bana, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. They came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth as Ishbosheth was taking his noonday rest. He was he was having his midday siesta, as it were. They came with great deception, as if to get wheat, and instead stabbed him in the stomach. You notice the deception of these men. They're true to their ancestors, true to the Gibeonites of old. They've deceived. And notice also where they stabbed him. They stabbed him in the stomach. Not unlike Joab who stabbed Abner in the stomach in our previous passage. This is an act of revenge. But it's even more than that as verses 7 and 8 make clear. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. These sons of Rimmon, the Beorothite, were motivated by much more than revenge. Yes, they wanted revenge, but they also saw this as an opportunity to gain a reward for themselves. A reward from the king. By killing Ishbosheth, these men claim to have eliminated the house of Saul. They claim that they have done the Lord's work. They claim that the vengeance of the Lord has been carried out by their hands. They claim to have secured the throne for David. And so they fully expect a reward. Maybe a government job. Maybe a, a payout. At a minimum, a great feast at the table of the king. But David saw right through it. Look at verses 9 through 11. Here we find David swearing an oath. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Notice David's faith in this statement. The Lord has delivered my life out of every adversity. This is why David never seized the opportunity to harm Saul all those years that he was fleeing from him in the wilderness. This is why David never lifted his hand against Saul or against anyone in Saul's house. It's why David did not even lift his hand against Saul's commander, Abner. It's because David trusted himself to the Lord. You see that in many of David's psalms we sang from Psalm 37 this morning. You might go back this afternoon and read the words of Psalm 37 where David is telling himself not to fret even though there are many wicked who are seeking to overthrow him. 
Don't fret, he says to his soul. Trust in the Lord. He will bring forth your justice as the noonday sun. And so here is David confessing before these two wicked men that his trust has been in the Lord all along. He doesn't need these wicked men to secure his throne for him. He trusts that the Lord will do that. And David then draws the attention of these murderers to the death of Saul, Ishbosheth's father, and the report that he had received and the action he took. He was swift to administer justice upon the man who claimed to have killed Saul, the Lord's anointed. You remember that back in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Well, now David says, I will administer justice quickly upon you, murderers, as well. You notice David calls them wicked men. You notice also he calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. Now, it's not that Ishbosheth was without guilt, but clearly this murder was wrong. It was not an act of war. It was an act of premeditated, cold-blooded murder against the son of a man who had been, or uh, against the man who had been the son of the Lord's anointed. And so David is quick to administer justice. You see it there in verse 12. David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. It's a rather gruesome last verse here in our passage the dismemberment of these two murderers and the burial of the head of Ishbosheth. And in all of this, you see, David is executing justice. David intends to make a point. By the execution of these two men, these two murderers, one author said, these men were seeking advancement, they received termination. Their hands were cut off, those hands by which they had done their sinful deed. Their feet were cut off, those feet with which they had run to bring what they thought was good news. And their handless Feetless bodies were hung out in public beside the pool of Hebron for all to see. What was David's point in this? Well, David knew the law. He knew Deuteronomy 21 that cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. And David meant for all Israel to know that these men were under the curse of God for what they had done. This was their reward. These murderers were made a curse. And then David took the head of Ishbosheth, his one time rival, his brother in law, and he buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. He honors Ishbosheth in his burial, even as he honored Abner in his. He buries them in the city of the king. And so here in this final verse of our chapter, you have this binding together of Abner and Ishbosheth, who have so much in common. Both of them were deceived. Both of them were stabbed in the stomach. Both of them were buried in Hebron. 
Both of them lay in the same tomb. Both of them were killed by wicked men. Both of them were declared righteous by the king. And with so much in common, it serves to highlight a big difference in the way that David dealt with their murders. David administered justice to Ishbosheth's murderers. He administered justice to Bana and Rechab, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite. He executed them on the spot. But you remember last Lord's Day in 2 Samuel 3, how David failed to uphold justice upon Abner's murderers. He let Joab and Abishai, the sons of Zeruiah, live. So what do we make of this? David is so consistent in his burial of Abner and Ishbosheth, but so inconsistent in the ways that he dealt with their murderers. What do we make of this? What do we make of David at the end of all this? Well, David is a complex figure. There is much that David does well. He, he doesn't touch the Lord's anointed. He doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. He entrusts himself to the Lord. He waits on the Lord. He sings psalms to the Lord. But there are also flaws. And there are moments of weakness. And there are inconsistencies in David. We, we see that here in his mercy to Abner and Ishbosheth, but also in his failure to consistently administer justice, executing the sons of Rimmon while allowing the sons of Zeruiah to live. All of them were murderers. Some are let go, some are murdered, or some are executed. Now, certainly David had a personal interest in that. The sons of Rimmon were not all that useful to him. They were merely commanders of raiders' bands. But the sons of Zeruiah were very useful to David. They were fiercely loyal to his house, and they were mighty warriors, not to mention the fact that they were also his nephews. So David overlooks justice and spares them, the sons of Zeruiah even as he is quick to administer justice to the sons of Rimmon. And it reminds us, as some have said, the best of men are men at best. You see, we need someone much greater than David. We need a much greater king we need a king who is perfectly consistent in justice, but also merciful. We need a king who shows mercy without compromising his justice. We need great David's greater son. We need Jesus. How desperately we need him. Like the sons of Zeruiah, Joab and Abishai, we, we too harbor grudges. And like the sons of Rimmon, 
We too want revenge on our enemies, on those who have done us and our loved ones wrong by nature. The way of peace is far from us. By nature, we, we have a natural tendency not only to hate God, but to hate one another. In fact, by nature, we are murderers like the sons of Zeruiah, like the sons of Rimmon. We hear the Ten Commandments read. We listen to the words of the Sixth Commandment. You shall not kill. And what do we do? Well, we think to ourselves, well, there's at least one commandment I've not broken. I've not killed anyone. I've not murdered anyone. I've not stabbed anyone in the stomach. We make the commandments as as narrow as possible to justify ourselves, thinking that God will overlook our sin and that we will somehow escape the justice we deserve. We conveniently forget that the commandments of God are exceedingly broad. God's will for us in the sixth commandment is not only that we do not murder, but as our catechism puts it, also that we do not belittle, hate, insult, or kill our neighbor, not by our thoughts, our words, our looks, or gestures, and certainly not by actual deeds. And we're not to be party in this, to this and others either. Rather, We're to put away all desire for revenge. So let me ask you, have you belittled anyone? Have you hated anyone? Have you insulted anyone? Have you entertained insulting thoughts towards anyone? Have you ever given an angry or hateful look to anyone? Have you ever desired revenge against anyone? To ask such questions is to answer them. We're all guilty, aren't we? So what's our plea before the king? Do you hope God will just overlook your sin? Do you think God will just look the other way? Our catechism reminds us what God's justice requires. It requires that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul in hell. The claims of God's justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another, God will not overlook your sin or mine. He will not compromise his justice. The claims of God's justice must be paid in full. And we can't pay, you and I. We actually increase our guilt every day. We need a mediator. We need one to stand between this holy God whom we have offended and sinned against and ourselves. We need one who is true and righteous man and also true God. We need Jesus. He alone can bear the just wrath that we deserve and secure for us the mercy we don't deserve. We need to cast ourselves upon the king, a king who has willingly made a curse for us. Behold the man upon a cross. 
my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. How do you know that? How do you know that his dying breath has brought you life? How do you know that it is finished? How do you know with all your heart that his wounds have paid your ransom? Well, you know it. Because God is consistent in his justice. Your sins must be paid for. My sins must be paid for. And our sins will either be paid for by Jesus or by ourselves. And here's the thing. If Jesus has paid for them, then you don't pay for them. Jesus said it is finished, and God does not require payment a second time. Praise God that He is perfectly just. It's the only way we can have confidence that our sins are indeed paid for, that we bear our sin no more, that the wages of our sin have been paid in full, that we are indeed forgiven, that there is nothing left to pay. Praise God for that gospel that gives us life. Our passage last Lord's Day and again this Lord's Day ends with a funeral and a burial. And not to be morbid, but we need to recognize that one day the funeral will be ours. It will be yours. It will be mine. Before that day, make sure that you cast yourself upon Jesus, upon his blood and righteousness. And know this that when through grace our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and asks no more. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's justice requires no more payment from you. None. In Christ, God's justice smiles upon you. In Christ, God's justice says of you, dear believer, not guilty. Forgiven, pardoned, forever. And so in Jesus, you are welcome at the table, the table of the King. Your heart may condemn you, but God is greater than your heart. And he knows what he has declared concerning you.
who have faith in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You bear them no more. There is no more curse for you. You are welcome at his table. Come, believing sinner, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we are so thankful that you are a God who is indeed just. And we thank you that you do not compromise that justice in any way, shape, or form. And so we can know and be assured that Jesus Christ has stood in our place and has bore the justice that we deserve and that we are now justified in him, declared not guilty in him, declared forgiven in him, and welcomed in him. And so as we come to the table this morning, even though our consciences may accuse us of having grievously sinned against all of your commandments and of never having kept any of them, may we look much to Christ and may we know that our worth and our acceptance is found only in him, that in Christ you look upon us as if we had never sinned nor been sinners, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. And so fill our hearts with peace and joy in believing, even as we come to the table of our King this morning. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen.